Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now going to cover in this audio 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. I've entitled it The Resurrection of Jesus because that's what this section is about. Our context is this. Paul has been spending most of the book of Corinthians chastising that church for their many failings, all the while calling them brothers. The last chapter, he chastised them for the misuse of tongues and prophecy. So let's start now in 1 Corinthians 15.1 as he takes up his discussion of the resurrection of Christ. Now, brothers, I want to clarify you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. Notice that Paul, in the midst of his chastisement, continues to call the Corinthians brothers. Not only does he call them brothers, he says that you have taken your stand on the gospel. And he says, you have received it. Well, people that are called brothers who have received the gospel and taken their stand on the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, they are saved even though they might be carnal. Now, I realize that the carnal Christian doctrine takes things a little bit too far and says that people who are not brothers, who have not received the gospel, who have not taken their stand on it, but merely have made, raised their hand at some kind of a Billy Graham crusade or something and then go out and live like hell, well, obviously those are not brothers. But the Corinthians, despite all their carnality and fleshliness, were brothers. Now, why did Paul want to clarify for them the gospel? The reason is, according to John Gill, is because some in the Corinthian church were denying the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul, after talking about the resurrection of Jesus, the first 11 verses, he's going to start talking about the resurrection of the Christian. In future audios, we'll cover that. Now, note that the gospel here includes the resurrection of the dead. He says, I want to clarify you the gospel I proclaim to you. So the gospel that he proclaimed to them contained the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead is a fundamental article of the gospel. Now, when Paul talks of the resurrection of the dead, he talks about the resurrection of Christ as well as the resurrection of the saints. Let me give you a quote from John Gill concerning the resurrection of Christ. Quote, The resurrection of Christ from the dead made a considerable part in the ministry of the apostles to the grief of the Sadducees among the Jews. The Sadducees, of course, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. To the scorn of the Gentile philosophers, they didn't either. And to the faith, hope, and comfort of Christians, this is the sum and substance of the word of faith or doctrine of the gospel upon which the whole depends. The sum and substance, John Gill says. The sum and substance of the gospel is the resurrection of the dead. Let's read a quote from John Gill about the resurrection of the saints. Quote, the resurrection of the saints is connected with it, the resurrection of Christ, and assured by it. In other words, they're hooked together like Siamese twins. You can't separate the two. If one is done, and one has accomplished the resurrection of Christ, then there, there's going to be the resurrection of the saints. If the saints aren't resurrected, then Jesus wasn't resurrected. They go together. I'll continue the quote here. This indeed is the gospel, good news, glad tidings, that the bodies of the saints shall be raised again, and made like to the glorious body of Christ, and being reunited to their souls, shall live with him to all eternity. And were this out of the gospel, it would not be gospel or good news. It would be an idle story. Faith would be a vain thing, and hoping and believing Christians of all the most miserable. There are a group of heretics out there called hyperpreterists who deny this physical resurrection of the body at the end of time, and they are, of all the heretics that you could ever think of, some of the worst, because the resurrection is so much a part of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the body. These hyperpreterist heretics do believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but they think they can divorce the physical res bodily resurrection of the Christian from that physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, and they cannot do that without being heretics. Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. 
Quote, those who deny the resurrection in general must deny that of Christ, and the consequence of the latter will be that Christian preaching and faith are vain. I mean, I got in a big uproar with these people for a long time, almost cost me a, a working associate association with a very good friend of mine. I had people, doctor tapes, doctor tape that I did at a conference and sent it to me. I could hear the click. He made me say that I was denouncing somebody and doing saying something horrible. Of course, it was sent to me in the mail anonymously. Then I had people say sweet words on the Preterist Archive site, and then they would send emails to each other saying, about, who is this guy? He's just a dumb business professor. And these people, not all of them, but I know another one that spent a lot of time trying to out a Orthodox Preterist writer and website owner who was very prominent in the Orthodox Preterist movement and who was very prominent in the attempts to stop the hyper-Preterist heresy. He went to a whole bunch of trouble searching courthouse records trying to figure out who she really was so she could out it, so he could out her. These people mean business, buddy. They are heretics of the worst sort. So if ever you run across anybody that dies the resurrection of the dead, just remember what Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians 15. It is not a minor doctrine. It is not an adiaphora, a doubtful thing. It is a fundamental part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, Paul said that he had proclaimed that gospel to the Corinthians. When did he do that? He said, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. When did he do that? Well, that was in Acts 18 on the second journey. It's when he started the church. We go down to 1 Corinthians 15, 2. You also are saved by it, saved by that gospel he proclaimed. You are saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. Now that if, right there, I can hear Arminian ears perk up, oh, you mean i got to hold to the message if I'm going to be saved? That is not what Paul meant. It doesn't mean that if does not mean that by their own efforts the Corinthians could hold on to the message and stay saved. Rather, it means this. Let me give you a quote from my NIV study Bible. Quote, if you are not persevering in the Christian faith, this is an evidence that you did not have saving faith in the first place. Compare Judas Iscariot, who eventually showed that he was not a true believer. So in other words, you want to prove that you're a believer, just look at yourself, and if you see you're holding on to the message, then you're a believer. But now, of course, Paul, he knew that those Corinthians were believers. He just called them brothers. You've taken your stand in the gospel. So he, he expects an answer to this if condition. He expects it to be, yes, you are a believer. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you. And of course, you are saved because you do hold to the message and you're saved. Now, saved can be two things. It can be justification by faith when you're saved, that point in time at which you were justified and born again. Or it could be progressive sanctification. You are being saved. The present tense can be either be continually progressive or it can be point in time. If it's continually progressive, it, was, it would be this way. You are also being saved by the gospel if you hold to the message I proclaim to you. Now there, it could mean you, if you're going to continue to be sanctified, you better hold on to the message I proclaim to you and not fall away from it because you're not going to continue with your sanctification. Your sanctification is going to come to a, a leveling off point, a plateau. Jameson Fawcett and Brown actually holds that that's what this verb means. You are also being saved by it. But anyway, I'll just take it mean, meaning if you're justified by it, saved when you were born again. If you hold to the message means, hey, if you hold to the message, that proves that you were born again. If you don't hold to the message, that proves you weren't born again. But since you are holding to the message, dear Corinthians, that means you were born again. So how about? So how about that? If you believe, then that, that means you believe for a purpose. At the end of the verse, he says, unless you believe for no purpose. Well, of course he, they believed for a purpose. Their purpose was they were going to get raised from the dead. 
is what he's getting at. We proceed now to verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15. For I passed on to you, Paul continues, as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Now, how did Paul receive this gospel that Christ died for our sins? Well, there's two ways. One is he could have received it from early Christian tradition, in other words, through other other early earlier Christians who had been eyewitnesses of Jesus and then he had been told about that. That's one option. That's the NIV Study Bible's option. The other option is that Paul received the gospel directly from Christ in Revelations. That's John Gill and Adam Clark's option. Well, when he says that I passed on to you as most important, of course, that means that Christ dying for our sins is a fundamental element of the gospel of Christ. And anytime you witness to somebody, you're going to mention that, obviously, because that's the most important. Now, he's what he when he says that I received this doctrine of dying for Christ dying for our sins, I received it. What he's Paul is saying is I did not originate it. In other words, he's being humble here. I didn't originate this. Either I got it from other Christians or I got it from a direct revelation of Christ, but I didn't I didn't make this up. So again, he's appealing to authority. And remember Paul is being attacked by false apostles in the first Corinthian church, and he is trying to connect himself directly to that early Christian tradition. The NIV Study Bible says that receiving and passed on are technical words. The verbs passed on and received are technical terms for transmitting and receiving tradition. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that he might have even gotten it from a short baptismal creed that was perhaps then existing. Existing, He's quoting that. I don't All these creeds, you know, Bible scholars love to point them out when you're on a cross cross them in the scriptures. doesn't matter whether he did that or whether he received it as a revelation. And of course, he had several revelations. The, he said he was caught up into the third heaven and he had a revelation when he first was born again on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. But at any rate, what he's trying to say is, this is important, it's fundamental that Christ died for our sins. Now, why is he trying to make such a big deal about dying for our sins when his main theme here is the resurrection of the body? and the resurrection of Christ, because Jesus could not be resurrected from the dead unless he died first. And if you think about it, think of all these heretical movements that deny that Jesus actually died on the cross. For example, I think the Muslims do that. The swoon theory, the liberal liberal theory that Jesus never died on the cross. He just passed out. He was fainted. And when they brought him back in the tomb, he rose from his faint, from his sleep, which is utterly, absolutely absurd. Somebody that got crucified on the cross that had his a spear stuck in his side and the blood and the water and the and, and the fluid around his lungs are pouring out of his side. Oh yeah, he just fainted. But at any rate, there's a lot of people who want to try to deny that Jesus died, and Paul precludes that. He says, "Look, Jesus died for our sins." Now Paul's he's uh, he's appealed to what he received either through revelation or tradition. He also appeals to the Old Testament scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he says in verse 3. Well, what scriptures could Paul be referring to? I'm going to read them quickly for examples. Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put hostility between you and the woman, God says, in between, God speaking to the devil, and between your seed and her seed. It's talking about Eve. The woman's seed, Eve's seed, of course, was Jesus. And your seed, the devil's seed, is going to be fighting with the seed of Eve. The devil's seed, of course, refers to all the children of the devil who killed Jesus. He will strike your head. Jesus will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, devil, you're going to injure him a little bit by injuring his heel, by crucifying him. But God, Jesus is going to strike your head when he rises from the dead, puts, uh, uh, puts to open shame 
all of the demons that tried to nail him to the cross and as he as he cast the ruler out from this world and so forth so that's fundamental that's the proto evangelium in Genesis 3:15 Daniel 9 24, this is from the famous 70 weeks prophecy. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Of course, that's a very difficult part of... Well, it's actually not that difficult. Let's put it this way. It's been controverted a lot. But at any rate, where it says that 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city... That's Jerusalem, to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin. That means Jesus died for our sins. To wipe away iniquity, iniquity that's referring to Jesus. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. my strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. That's Jesus speaking to God in, in that famous Messianic Psalm 22. You put me into the dust of death. Jesus died. Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6, But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are all healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That's a clear one there, that Jesus was crushed, he was killed, he didn't faint. So, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, there were lots of scriptures that pointed this out to the Corinthians. Now, one little word study here, he died for our sins. Those prepositions are tricky because they have a wide range of meaning a lot of times in English as well as other languages too. It could mean this, he died for our sins in order to take them away. In order to take them away, he died. He, he died. For to take them away, he died. Now, that's the way Jameson Fawcett Brown takes it. He says it does not mean in place of our sins. He died for our sins means he died in place of our sins. Our sins should die. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Or it doesn't mean he died on account of our sins. Because of our sins, he died. All of that is actually true, but it doesn't really give the best idea. He had a purpose in dying. The purpose was for, in order to. Take away our sins. We go to verse 4, 1 Corinthians 15. That's in the middle of a sentence, so let me go back and pick up the end of verse 3. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, verse 20, verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That again, that he was buried is referring to that which Jesus, what Paul had received. He had received that Christ died for our sins, and he received that he was buried. That he was raised on the third day. Now he's gotten to the resurrection. He's already mentioned the crucifixion of Jesus. Now in verse 4 he's going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. He received that too. Either by vision or by church tradition. And also by scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now the third day of course refers to the resurrection Sunday after Good Friday when he was crucified on Friday. And the Jews, the way they accounted, the way they counted days is if you had just a part of a day that counted for a whole day. So he was killed on Friday so that's part of Friday, so that's one day, all day Saturday, and just a little bit on Sunday morning, he was in the grave, so that's three days, one, two, three. Now, what scriptures are being referred to when Paul says, according to the scriptures, that Jesus rose? Well, here's some scriptures. Let me read them to you. Psalm 16:10. for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. Isaiah 53:10. yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will prolong his days. 
the idea that he was crushed severely, but God will prolong the days of the sun. Resurrection. Hosea 6.2. He will revive us after two days, and on the third day he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. Assuming that's applied to Jesus, that's a resurrection on the third day. Adam Clark says that when Paul says, according to the scriptures, that Jesus would rise, that it's not referring to any particular scripture. Quote, it is not said anywhere in the scriptures in expressed terms that Christ should rise on the third day, but it is fully implied in his types, as in the case of Jonah, who came out of the belly of the fish on the third day, but particularly in the case of Isaac, who was a very expressive type of Christ, for as his being brought to Mount to the Mount Moriah, bound and laid on the wood in order to be sacrificed, pointed out the death of Christ, so his being brought alive on the third day from the mount was a figure of Christ's resurrection. So we have to put types in there as well as explicit scriptures. And so Paul was right. The resurrection of Jesus was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures, contrary to what current Jewish rabbis say, and Jewish rabbis back in the past, who say that Jesus is a false Messiah. We go to verse 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul continues, he received, dot, 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 and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. Paul received that too, either from tradition, from the early uh, Christians, or from Revelation. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. Now, where did the appearance to Cephas occur? It's recorded in Luke 24, verse 34. Who said, the Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon. This is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus reporting to the twelve apostles on Resurrection Sunday night. The Lord has appeared to Peter. Now, there were lots of resurrection appearances, and it's a fun thing to go through the four Gospels and collate all those appearances. I've done that in previous audios when we were going through the Gospels. I won't do that here, but there were a lot of appearances. For example, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene before he appeared to Peter. Mark 16, 9, early on the first day of the week after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had driven seven demons. So now Paul is using here two lines of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. First, the Old Testament scriptures, which I've just read to you, and also eyewitness testimony, which is extremely important. Acts 1, 20, 21, verse 22. This is Luke writing the book of Acts. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time that Lord Jesus went in out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So in trying to fulfill that 12th apostle slot after Judas betrayed Jesus, they, had to, they ended up coming up with Matthias to replace Judas. And one of the requirements was we need somebody who went in and out with Jesus who saw all what went on. Again, for testamentary effect, testimonial effect, I should say, not testamentary, testimonial effect so that people would believe the witness about what Jesus had done. The NIV Study Bible points out that there are six resurrection appearances out of all of them. There are six that appear in chapter 15. And of course, the Gospels have more. So Paul appeals to eyewitness testimony. Liberals, he rose from the dead. That's something you're going to have to come to grips with sooner or later. Hopefully in this world, but not if in this world. In the next, you're going to have to deal with that. Now, here, Paul refers to the 12. That's the original apostles. Now, notice it was not really 12. There was 11 because Judas went. And then, of course, they put Matthias in, in which case you could call them 12. But the gospel writers use the term 12, the 12 or the 11 interchangeably. For example, we can see in five places in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts 
where the eleven were referred to as the eleven. For example, Matthew twenty-eight sixteen, the eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Mark sixteen fourteen. later he appeared to the eleven, capital E in my Holman Christian Study Bible, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had been resurrected. That was either the first or the second Sunday, either resurrection Sunday or the next Sunday night afterwards, I can't remember. But the point is, they were called the eleven. Luke 24, 9, returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Luke 24:33. that very hour they, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, capital E, and those who gathered together. And now we get to Acts 1.26, which is after the Gospels, after the resurrection. Then they cast lots for them, the lots for the apostles. And the lot fell to Matthias, so he was numbered with the eleven apostles. We can go now to verse 6, 1 Corinthians 15. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some has fallen asleep. Now, he's already appealed to a few witnesses. Now he's appealing to 500 of them. He's going to 500 people. Some have fallen asleep because Paul was writing in the mid-50s. The resurrection was about 30. So you're talking about a quarter of a century. In, in 25 years, people are going to die. So some of them have fallen asleep. Some of them have died. But a lot of other ones are alive, and they could do two things. They could bolster the faith of those Corinthians who were doubting Christ's resurrection. We see a lack of faith in the resurrection, and Paul hints at this in 1 Corinthians 15:12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So some Corinthians were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Well, that, that just killed the whole gospel right there. So Paul, that's why Paul's appealing to all these witnesses. Oh, yes, he, he rose from the dead. The other thing that Paul is doing here by quoting the testimony of, the, of these 500 brothers is he's defending himself if, by people who were saying that the resurrection didn't occur. He's going to say, no, yes, it did. So the two things, to bolster the Corinthians who did believe that Jesus rose again from the dead but who might be having doubts about it, and also just to contradict and refute those who out and out denied the resurrection of the dead. Now, where that appearance to the 500 occurred is not clear from the Gospels. The NIV Study Bible says it may be the appearance in Galilee, which is recorded in Matthew 28. 28. That's the Great Commission place. Clark says that's probably where it was. I tend to think that's probably where it was, too. Remember, Jesus in Matthew 26, 32 said, After I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to, the, to Galilee. He said this on the Mount of Olives after he left the Lord Last Supper, right before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, look, go ahead of me to Galilee. So he had appointed a place in Galilee where the disciples could gather secretly and safely. They couldn't do that in Jerusalem, so they went up, and that's probably where the 500 disciples were. We see this in Matthew 28:16 through 20. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. It was on a mountain near Galilee. It doesn't say that the 500 were there, but people speculate that they were, and I suspect that they were. John Gill points out that Jesus had mostly preached in Galilee, not down in Jerusalem, but in Galilee, so the number of disciples there was large, so there's likely to be 500 people there. Remember, in Jerusalem, in Acts 1.15, the number of people who were gathered together in the upper room was 120, which is not, not 500. 
Tradition says, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, that that mountain near Galilee was Mount Tabor. That's a tradition. You hear that sometimes, but it's a tradition. It's not in the Gospels. Now, why would Paul appeal to so many witnesses? Because it's hard for 500 witnesses to lie without contradicting each other. I would say it's not only hard, not only difficult, it's impossible. I guess logically it's, it's possible, but for all practical purposes, 500 witnesses are going to contradict each other if they're lying. Remember when the chief priests were trying to get testimony against Jesus, his blasphemy, and they kept getting these false witnesses up there, and they kept contradicting each other on the Friday night of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying, look, I've got plenty of witnesses that can back me up. With something so stupendous as the resurrection of Jesus, people would be indeed looking for proofs that he didn't rise from the dead. I mean, it was just as astonishing to people back then as it is to us that somebody could rise from the dead. And so Paul's going to have to back it up. We should not be afraid of having to back up what happened in history. Someone has noted that it is a remarkable proof of Jesus' resurrection that no counterproof of the resurrection has ever been found. If you go back and, and look at the apologetic work on the resurrection of Christ, it is slam dunk. There is no way the skeptics can prove that Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, not using historical records. It's impossible. And that's really fun to do. For example, one, one apologetic argument is how could that ragtag band of persecuted and depressed apostles go out and all of a sudden proclaiming that Jesus is alive when to do so would mean they would get thrown in the clink and executed? There has to be a reason for that. Why did the Jews go to so much trouble to try to cover it up when the Roman soldiers came back to them and said, the tomb is empty. Oh, oh we got to come up with a story. You, you fell asleep. Yeah, Roman soldiers falling asleep. Penalty for that was death. Let me finish this thought with Adam Clark's idea. I'm paraphrasing Clark here. He is telling the Corinthians, Paul is telling the Corinthians, look, if we are preaching a lie about the resurrection, there's still plenty of people alive who can back me up. If I'm preaching a lie, there's plenty of people around who could call me on it. In other words, I, I've got people that can say that I'm telling the truth, and there's also plenty of people around that could, tell, that could say that I was lying if such people existed, but there are no such people. They can't refute what I'm telling you. Like the Jews who could have produced the body of Jesus, but they didn't do it. Why? Because they didn't have the body, because he was resurrected. As Adam Clark says, quote, he might have been confronted by many if he had dared to assert a falsity, but Paul was not afraid to assert the resurrection of the dead because he knew it was true. One last little point of this verse, he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Now, it's the easiest to assume is that the 500 were gathered there waiting for Jesus and he appeared all at once. But some people have speculated, well, actually it's me, I speculate, here's an idea, the 500 were scattered, and then Jesus appeared to them all miraculously at one time, which means he would have to appear in a spiritual body to 500 people scattered all over the place all at once. Well, I don't really believe that. I just bring that up as an interesting speculation. I believe they were all gathered together at one place. We go to verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 15. Then he, Jesus, appeared to James and to all the apostles. Paul still going through the witnesses that saw Jesus to back his claims of the resurrection up. This, is, this James is not... The James is the son of Zebedee. He was one of the original 12 because Paul splits out here James then to all the apostles, or at least it appears to split out James from all the other apostles. Likewise, James, the son of Alphaeus, he was one of the original apostles too, the lesser James, James the lesser. But this James that Paul refers to here is split out from all the other apostles. So the odds are that Paul is referring to James, the brother of the Lord here, James the just. He appeared to James, quote, then to all the apostles as, as a different body of people than James the just, James the Lord's brother. Because James the Lord's brother didn't believe in Jesus. He wasn't one of the original 
twelve apostles. John 7, 5 reads this way, For not even his brothers believed in him. So, and James was one of his brothers. But he did join with the apostles after the resurrection. The brothers did. For we see in Acts 1, 14, All these were continually reunited in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they finally believed. Took them a while. Later, of course, James, the brother of Jesus, became one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. For example, he was one of the leading voices at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15:13. After they stopped speaking, James responded. That's James the Just. The brother of Jesus responded, Brothers, listen to me. Now, when did Jesus appear to James? We don't know. It's unknown. As the NIV Study Bible points out, and John Gill and Adam Clark, nobody knows. Now, when did he appear to all the apostles? Well, it could be he appeared to all the apostles at the ascension. And so that's when the apostles saw the resurrection, or when they saw the resurrected Jesus at the ascension. This is in Acts 1, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father is set by his own authority, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, dot, dot, dot. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and the cloud took him out of their sight. So at the ascension is when they could have, when the resurrected Jesus appeared to all the apostles, I don't know why you couldn't just say on Resurrection Sunday night, and the next Sunday night after that, he appeared to all of them sitting hiding there in that room in Jerusalem. We go to verse 8, 1 Corinthians 15. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. So Paul says, I saw him too. Now, when did Paul see Jesus? Well, it was several years after the resurrection. It was maybe AD 33. Then the NIV study Bible speculates about three years after Jesus had died. What appearance was he talking about? Well, I think it's easier to say, on the road to Damascus is the easiest time to say, but it could have been when Paul was caught up to the third heaven. You recall that famous incident. And when he was in a trance at the Temple of Jerusalem, not quite so famous as after the third journey, he was praying, he had a trance there, and he says, I think I think in that trance, Jesus said, stay true to the heavenly vision, if I remember correctly, just to encourage him because they were about to arrest him and trying to kill him there in Jerusalem, the Jews were. But anyway, I think it's the road to Damascus is the easiest time to say when Jesus appeared to Paul. I've heard some people speculate that after the road to Damascus, when Paul was there in the Arabian Desert, Damascus and all around the desert out there in those couple of years there, that Jesus appeared to him personally there too. I wouldn't doubt that. I don't know that. That's a speculation. Now, what does Paul mean when he says he is abnormally born? Well, he wasn't born as an apostle at the normal time is what he's saying. He had not lived with Christ as the others had, as the NIV Study Bible points out. At his dramatic conversion, he was snatched away from his former life. John Gill says that Paul was referring to a proverbial expression at his time. The common people at Rome referred to certain senators at Rome as abortive. <laughs> they were abortions, like certain politicians I know. They gained office by favor or bribery. And so that means they didn't do it normally. They didn't do it legally. They didn't do it morally. And likewise, you have someone who is abnormally born as a premature birth, a miscarriage, if you will. Now, that's actually controverted whether the birth was a miscarriage or whether it was or i'll give you another option in a minute but i think it is it was a miscarriage a birth before its time as john gill says these kind of births happen suddenly immediately with no notice women that have miscarriage all of a sudden they spot and start bleeding and it's a terribly traumatic experience it happens all at once paul's conversion was sudden immediate all at once and quite traumatic for him as john gill quaintly says quote births before the full time are often occasioned to by blows or outward force and are violent extrusions of the fetus just and then unquote 
And Paul's and Gil goes on to say, just like Paul's conversion was accomplished by a sudden outward quote unquote blow, the appearance of the risen Jesus that he was persecuting. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this, quote, as a child born before the due time is puny, and though born alive, yet not of the proper size and scarcely worthy of the same name of the name of man, so quote, I am the least of the apostles, unquote. So in other words, Paul is saying, I'm I'm a premature baby. I didn't necessarily die in the miscarriage when the when the birth was born, when the baby was born prematurely and expelled. I was actually born, but only as a preemie, and I am weak and I'm puny. I but it, whatever his what his point of the metaphor was, it's clear what he's trying to affirm. I am not trying to claim equal dignity with the original twelve apostles. Paul's very humble as he asserts his apostolic authority all, authority all through these two letters to the Corinthians. He says, last of all. Jesus appeared to him. If you really want to get technical about that, John the Apostle had a vision of Jesus after Paul on the Isle of Patmos, assuming that the book of Revelation was written after Corinthians, and I believe everybody agrees that it was. But I don't think that's what Paul means. I think what he means is last of all the apostles, he appeared to all of them during the, during Jesus' earthly ministry, and then he appeared to me in my vision after the earthly ministry of Jesus is what he's talking about. He's not trying to be technical and saying that none of the apostles had a later vision than he had. Now, there's one more option is about what this means, untimely born. John Gill suggests that it was a posthumous birth that Paul is referring to here, a birth after the death of the father. In other words, he's born after the father's de dead, so he's untimely born, and that would fit well with the idea of Paul becoming an apostle after the other apostles. They're born already. It's like the, the other kids in the family are born beforehand, before the father dies, and then the father dies, and then... Paul is born posthumously. People who take this option says that miscarriage doesn't fit the metaphor quite so well because miscarriage is before a normal birth and and Paul's abnormal birth. A miscarriage is an abnormal birth before a normal birth, but Paul's conversion to Christ was an abnormal birth that occurred after the normal birth of the other apostles. Well, that's something not worth arguing over. The point is, is that Paul is saying, hey, I am not one of the original apostles. He continues in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles. Now, he does say he's an apostle now, but he's the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You wonder whether that weighed on Paul's conscience. I know he was totally forgiven by Christ. I just speculate, you know, he's a human being like anybody. Sometimes the devil brings back, or our flesh brings back, old sins that we've committed and saying, what a jerk you are. You wonder whether that might have happened to Paul every once in a while, because that's terrible to be persecuting Jesus' lambs. How do we know we persecuted the church of God? Well, for example, in Acts 9, verses 4 through 5, we read this. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's Jesus. Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. So, Paul persecuted Jesus. How was he persecuting Jesus? Because he was persecuting Jesus' body, the saints. John Gill says of this persecution of Paul, quote, he not only consented to the death of Stephen, the first martyr, and held the clothes of them that stoned him, but he made havoc of the church, hailing men and women to prison, and continued to breathe out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, and had letters of commission from the high priest in his pocket to seize any of this way at Damascus and bring them bound to Jerusalem. Another quote from Gill. According to his own account, he shut up many of the saints in prison, gave his voice against them when they were put to death, punished them oft in every synagogue, 
compel them to blaspheme, and being exceeding mad against them, persecuted them to strange cities. When Paul says he's the least of the apostles, he also says he's the least of the saints even. Ephesians 3, 8. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah. Now Paul had been given much, 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 many, 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 many spiritual riches. But he didn't brag about it. He knew where, where he came from. He was a scumbag before he got saved, and he let everybody know it. However, even though he was a scumbag, and he was the least of the apostles, when someone questioned Paul's apostolic authority, he was quite willing to stand up for his apostolic authority. We read in 2 Corinthians 11:5, Now I consider myself in no way inferior to the super apostles. So Paul's walking a fine line here. He's trying to be gracious and humble about the grace that he's received from Jesus. But on the other hand, he wants to say, I did receive grace from Jesus. I do have authority. I started, you, I started the church at Corinth, and I expect you to listen to me and follow to the pattern that I've laid down for you, the traditions. I want you to follow the traditions that I laid down for you. Adam Clark says this, Taken as a man and a minister of Christ, he was greater than any of the twelve. Taken as an apostle, he was less than any of the twelve, because not originally in that body. Now that's an interesting quote because it points out that Paul actually did more than the other the original 12 apostles did as far as spreading the gospel. He did the gospel. He did much more, but he wasn't one of the original guys. It's interesting that in Latin as Jameson Fawcett Brown points out, Paulus means least. He was the least of the apostles. Even his name said so, Paulus least. None of the original 12 had persecuted the followers of Jesus, but by golly Paul had done so. Okay, so he gives that low view of his dignity in verses 9 and go, in verse 9 then he goes to verse 10 1 Corinthians 15 10, 10 but by God's grace I am what I am in other words he's saying yeah I can't I had a bad start but because of God's grace I am who I am I'm an apostle now I started the church here I'm an apostle to the Gentiles but by God's grace I am what I am and his grace toward me was not ineffective not ineffective means effective <laughs> he kind of What's that figure of speech, litotes, when you, you double negative, make a double, double negative like that? It was not ineffective. It was effective. I, I did a lot. However, I worked more, more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was within me. Again, he's referring to all the other so-called super apostles, the other apostles who were claiming authority over the Corinthians instead of Paul. He said, I worked harder than any of them. So he's now going to start bragging about his service in the Lord. And, and later, I think it's in Second Corinthians, he said, I speak as a fool. I'm boasting about this, but I've got to. And notice, he, now, and this is very critical here. He says, I worked more than any of them. Work, work. Oh, I thought we don't get saved by works. Well, this is not talking about getting saved by works. This is talking about doing the works which were prepared before you before the foundation of the world, as Paul says in Ephesians. I worked more than any of them. And notice, whenever, any time in the Gospels, or in Paul's letters, I'm sorry, any time in Paul's letters, when, when Paul says he worked, he immediately says, right afterwards, but it wasn't me that was working, but God's grace that was with me. He says that here in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He also does it in Philippians 2.12 and 13. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Work, work. Next verse, which often is not quoted. For it is God who is working in you. In other words, yeah, do all the work you're going to, but don't do it by yourself. If you don't have God working in you, you ain't going to do nothing, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Ling, zero, nada, nothing. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. 
There's some other verses too, which I don't have in front of me, but you get the idea here. Paul talks about working. He immediately says, it's not me doing it in my flesh. It's God working in me. God's grace that was in me, that was with me or in me. God's grace, therefore, trumped Paul's evil works, his persecution of the saints. God's work, God's grace overcame that because of all the persecution of the saints that he did, he got a lot more people saved, including you and me. How did he work more than the other apostles? Here's how John Gill puts it in his inimitable fashion. Quote, he, Paul, labored in the Lord's vineyard in the word and doctrine, preaching in season and out of season. He traveled over a greater part of the world, preached oftener, and wrote more than any of the rest, was the instrument of converting more souls, and he planted more churches, endured more hardships and sufferings than any of the other apostles. So you see, Paul is trying to shore up his authority in the church of Corinth as against those who were questioning his authority. Last verse, 1 Corinthians 15:11. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. Paul is saying, hey, whether it's the other apostles that are claiming to be big shots or whether it's me, it doesn't matter who proclaimed it, or even if it's not a, a false super apostle, but maybe a good apostle like Apollos or Cephas, whoever it is, so we proclaim and you have believed. We, Paul's not concerned about the messenger. He's concerned about the message. And what's the message? He says, so we proclaim, so that Jesus was buried and raised. In verses 3 and 4, as we've previously gone over, that was his main point. Paul now returns from his digression to his main point. His digression concerned his competence as a witness and as an apostle, as John Gill points out. But his main point is the resurrection of the dead. And all the apostles were proclaiming the same thing, that Jesus rose from the dead. And that was much more important than who was doing the proclaiming. And so with that introduction, we will take up in our next audio, starting in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, the problem of the resurrection of the Christian dead, or the resurrection of people in general who weren't Jesus. An extremely important topic, which we'll take up next time, and which I hope you will listen to, and I hope you enjoyed this audio.